What you're telling me is that music is about to stop, and we're going to be left holding the biggest bag of odorous excrement ever assembled in the history of darkness. 1974, 1987, 92, 97, 2000, and whatever we want to call this. It's all just the same thing over and over. We can't help ourselves. I say when we sell. Hey, 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 I say when we sell. Gentlemen, the signals are going off. BlackRock is here. Matt Dines is joining us for episode five of The Last Trade. Matt, welcome. Let's start it off. Let's start it off with the signals we're saying. I was saying right before we hit record, I've got an investment banker in the family, a cousin-in-law, if you will. When things are happening in that side, of the industry, of the, the the finance side of the world, I usually get a text from him. I got a text from him yesterday. I think BlackRock has sent a signal out there and you have all of Wall Street trying to figure out, all right, what is our Bitcoin strategy? What are we doing? I won't get into the specifics of what he reached out about, but Wall Street seems to be interested in what Bitcoin companies are doing these days. I, I had a signal too. Uh, a Stanford friend of mine who has been bullish on crypto broadly um, reached out yesterday a little little bit um, in despair about the future of crypto because it suddenly seems a lot darker um, with the SEC coming in and and making its actions. Um, And, you know, I think that's part of the journey towards Bitcoin is realizing that everything else is, is doesn't have staying power. Um, and it feels like that is a little indicator for me that my network is just a little bit closer to seeing that Bitcoin and crypto are different and Bitcoin has real real value and real legs and, and it should be a part of everybody's portfolio. Yeah, I think uh, it's very, very interesting times. We know, you know, we have a directional idea what's going to happen over the course of this year, next year. And um, as we've started kind of the, the sales motion with on-ramp and outreach and inbound, uh, you know, credit to Jesse and his, his piece this week with uh, BlackRock Trust and on-ramp and, you know, one's a bicycle and can run properly and one uh, stuck in mud or, or is inevitably going to be stuck in mud. We had some conversations with unions that have allocated in small amounts. Um, but what was interesting is that they said now other unions are looking at them asking them what, what the playbook is, how they could evaluate and today I had a really good conversation with a, a pension fund in early stages that are asking all the right questions on the fundamentals. Um, they realize it's been the best performing asset for 10 years, but also at the same time, they haven't figured out how do they hold it long term. And so we think we're on to something and being able to help them. But it's just early days, right? So it's going to be very interesting next, let's call it 18 to 24 months. Yeah. yeah. Matt, you getting any signals out there? <laughs> so, well, if you just look at the week in review, um, there wasn't that much news uh from what you call like the just the broader capital markets the broader finance it was really you know that the the lines hitting hitting the ticker uh that, that that i review um the big ones were obviously the the sec enforcement uh the things going on with uh what would you say like the the the, the prime trust situation the um the binance situation the true usd situation everything there uh, seems like the action is happening. And then on top of that, you had um, just the, the cover smoke signal of the, the BlackRock Bitcoin ETF. 
Uh, but on top of that, you saw other just kind of infrastructure news that the the capital markets players are showing up. Uh, two big headlines, uh, I, I think, that I saw that showed up on my radar. So there's the firm EDX Markets um, have been kind of building up, uh, but these are the big boys showing up. So backed by, uh, I want to say, Fidelity, Schwab, and Citadel. Their CEO is the former global head of business development. It's a spot trading firm for, let me say, Bitcoin, but they're not exclusively listing Bitcoin as uh, their their sole focus. They they list, you know, the other, um, I'd say, just crypto assets, if you will. I don't like these terms, but the the other stuff, um, they they do include that on what they're offering on their on their trading desks. Uh, but you know, from from that angle, you know, to show up with that degree of a caliber of a person launching this project like it's telling you like they're mobilizing the troops you know for the invasion into carthage i think it's coming another one i saw uh elwood technologies um this firm is backed by um alan howard like billionaire co-founder of you know, a massive hedge fund brevin howard um they're basically creating you know portfolio management and order management system for institutional clients. So um, our firm build we use for our order management system. I can explain what that tool does um, a little bit. But basically, Bloomberg part announced a partnership. And this has been a, a few months in the making. And all of this is public info, too. So I'm not sharing anything that's you know not on the, the news wire if you're looking for it. Uh, but they announced you know, portfolio trading for Bitcoin. But they also list those others, obviously. Uh, they're not showing up with an exclusive Bitcoin focus, but that's you know, where we believe the action is. But yeah, the order management system for institutional players is it's part of like the table stakes that you need uh, for tools and infrastructure for this to show up and be like a, a reliable asset class for capital markets and, and scale players, if you will. So when I say that, you know, that, that acronym order management system or OMS, um, it just means like when you're trading for a client account, like let's say build, we manage multiple clients' uh, funds. You, when you need to buy or sell, you know, a holding in their portfolio, you need to show uh, like a ticket, if you will, like an order ticket. Same way, if you go, you know, order food at uh, Cooper's Barbecue or something like that, you know, you'll get your ticket back. You know, shout out to my Austin friends. Want to make sure I put this in, you know, the terms you guys uh, like to see. But you get a, you get a ticketing and like a timestamp, uh, a, a, a price that your trade was struck, volume, and then your counterparty. Uh, for that. So you see this system, you, you know, uh, build out going on. And then also like the spot market development where you don't have, um, you know, what do we say? just like the, like the bucket shops, the, the, the Binance, the, you know, all of these exchanges that are just, you know, fly by night, they, they, they come, they go. Um, it seems like you're, you're seeing right now the, the infrastructure getting built at the base layer um, for the, for the scale players to show up. And yeah, you know, over the long time frame, it's it's not just going to be a quick copy paste of the old system onto the new. I think this will this will change everything. Yeah, yep. feels like yeah, I, it's happening. Yeah, it does feel like it, it feels it feels like Wall Street wants to run this industry, the the crypto industry in, in particular. I found it interesting that like EDX, the the Schwab, Citadel, um, and who else was it? Is it? Fidelity, Fidelity. Also part of that. yeah. Um, you know, they're not just going to do Bitcoin, which means that th they believe that the SEC is not going to like completely clamp down on crypto. 
or at least for the foreseeable future, which then kind of casts into into doubt, like why why is the SEC going after crypto and crypto companies like Binance, but they're going to allow EDX to, to set up shop and do the same sort of thing in a more professional, more Wall Street way. It, it does seem like regulators are kind of clearing the slate in order to make room for the big boys who have decided they can't miss out anymore. So I would say a, a, it'd be good to have a lawyer on uh, to, to bring the perspective on this because there's, you know, just demarcation lines uh, that can be drawn. So obviously Bitcoin with the immaculate conception, you know, it's UTXO set that's, you know, treated as not a security or it's, it's, you know, on one end of the spectrum, like put it as further to the left on as decentralized as you can be. Uh, as clear as you can be, this is, you know, a, a commodity ledger money. And then you go to the right, the full end of the spectrum, it'd be like the A16Z coins, um, you know, just just spinning up projects, get the wash rating going and pump and dump uh, type of securities. And there's some demarcation, you know, along the middle. And if you're using something like, um, you guys know this space better than I do, but something that forked over the UTXO set from Bitcoin at one point, um, or if it was just the, like a hard fork of the technology, those are the things that are kind of grandfathered in or treated as differently than these just startup, Silicon Valley funded tokenization, pump and dump type of thing. So it, it's somewhere in there and you don't, you're not going to see um, any of these at this point in time just coming in as, as Bitcoin only is kind of what I'm reading as I, I, I go through these uh, news announcements. Yeah, the the institutions have to learn their lessons too. They're going to get wrecked. They're going to get oh, wrecked. Yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah, and and BlackRock might be a big part of that for some of these people because of the paper Bitcoin claims that will be created out of out of their product. Uh, well, I think it's a good opportunity to jump into this. Obviously, news of the week is BlackRock. They're filing for the ETF, the trust. We'll just call it an ETF. Just run with that, even though it's probably not Jesse. We'll let you elaborate on that. But I think it's great that we have Matt on today during this week, during this news week to set the stage for this conversation. We Matt, we booked you a few weeks ago before any of this was news. And it's a bit prescient that you're with us this week, particularly uh, because, all right, BlackRock filed for the trust, which essentially will operate like GLD, which people refer to as an ETF. Jesse, you dove into the filing and wrote a piece and a nice thread on exactly what the trust structure is, what individual clients or people buying into that trust are going to be able to do in terms of taking the Bitcoin in kind eventually, or not being able to, as it is seen, uh, as it seems, uh, the paper Bitcoin that can leak into that structure. And I think having Matt here, uh, to build on that conversation, BlackRock, obviously the largest asset manager in the world. A lot of people have tied up uh, their retirement funds with the BlackRocks and Vanguards of the world. And that is something that Matt is very passionate about, the the situation of retirement accounts in the U.S. Um, and so let's start with jumping into the structure of BlackRock's trust, how it works, and then I think we can dive into the landscape of retirement accounts in the U.S., how BlackRock plays into that and how Bitcoin, we believe, can can really help retirees as their retirement accounts begin to fall underwater. 
Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, so I spent last weekend kind of digging into the BlackRock product and, and pouring through their their S1 filing, you know, what they intend to do with this product. It, it's a trust. Uh, it's a grantor trust model, um, which is a great model uh, and is, in fact, what what OnRamp, what OnRamp's Bitcoin trust is structured as. Um, that is an excellent model for Bitcoin specifically because as a single commodity investment vehicle, um, a grantor trust uh, allows the tax status to live with the, with the investor. So it's, you know, for tax purposes, owning a share of BlackRock Bitcoin trust, since it's a grantor trust, is equivalent to owning that underlying Bitcoin from a tax perspective, which means that when that investor wants to withdraw um, in kind that Bitcoin, it, it isn't a taxable event. And that's essential for delivering that that desirable attribute of this trust structure, um, no taxable events of, on in-kind redemption, which is great. And that's how it should be. That's better than GBTC. Uh, GBTC is not structured that way because to get out of GBTC, you can't with, withdraw in-kind. You have to sell your shares into dollars and then use those dollars to go buy Bitcoin. So that's a taxable event. And so, you know, in, in that transaction, you could take a 30% hit on the value of your holdings because you have to go pay the tax man. Um, so the grantor trust side of what BlackRock is doing is great. It, it's, it's a good design. Um, and, and the other benefit of what is happening here is that because this is a, a spot product, not a futures-based product, um, it means that BlackRock has to actually buy Bitcoin. So any allocation that they make towards Bitcoin um, via this fund from you know, the, the $10 trillion of AUM that they have, um, that means buying Bitcoin. So if they had a 1% allocation of their $10 trillion under, under management, that's $100 billion worth of, of demand that would be spread out over some time. Um, but that seems reasonable over the next few years. And $100 billion of inflowing demand you know, for an asset that's $500 billion in total valuation, but most of it is not available for sale, um, means that your $100 billion of demand is bidding for a tiny pool of, of what is available for sale, which will, and since price is set at the margin, and you're going to string out a, a series of trades that amount to $100 billion of inflowing demand, bidding up the price of Bitcoin dramatically in order to find supply willing to, to be sold massively bullish for Bitcoin um, in that sense. So that's the good of what BlackRock is doing. Um, the bad of it is that it's BlackRock uh, <laughs> and they're bringing BlackRock norms of governance and custody to an asset that doesn't play nicely with that type of, of uh, expectation. Um, so a few the, the three, in my mind, biggest problems with this is, first of all, rehypothecation. Um, there's no, there's nothing that prohibits BlackRock from lending out the Bitcoin that ends up in their trust. And as a result, they will do that. So they will get a little extra yield by lending the Bitcoin that they're holding to, to the three arrows capitals types, the, the maybe the BlockFi types who are going to go further out on the risk curve and 
do something with that Bitcoin and maybe it works out or maybe it doesn't. Um, you know, so they're going to generate a little, a little extra yield that way. But in doing so, they're creating paper Bitcoin claims because they're taking the Bitcoin in the fund that the investors in the fund think they own. And they're giving that Bitcoin, you know, they're lending it out to somebody else. Um, and then now there's two claims on that Bitcoin. There's the, 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 that Bitcoin lives with somebody who's borrowing it, but the original investor in the, in the trust thinks that they own it. And, and actually, they have a paper claim on it now. Um, so in that way, you're going to be creating paper Bitcoin, um, messing with the supply of Bitcoin in the process. And ultimately, that, you know, that loan either has to be resolved, um, get closed, and in order to restore that there's one Bitcoin for one claim. Um, or if it goes sideways, somebody's stuck without Bitcoin because there's two claims and only one coin. Um, so that's a big problem with the rehypothecation side uh, side of things. There, uh, gosh, that's that's such a deep rabbit well, hole that I get lost. Yeah, go, go on. Well, is it explicit that they're able to rehypothecate? Is it something that's just like not mentioned that they can't, and therefore yeah, my, it's implicit maybe that they could and probably will. It's implicit. Um, and, and it's the norm in, with 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 ETFs um, in general that this is just how Wall Street does things. Like you're allowed to lend out the assets in an ETF, and so people do. Uh, and and there's nothing in the S one that says they can't do it, which means that they're going to do it. Yeah. And Michael, what? There's, there's oh, Matt, go ahead. Sorry, um, Michael. If you have something, go ahead. I have another angle too. Yeah. Problem. Redemption. Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of components to this that would be interesting. One is I'm really excited to have Matt join because I, I feel like he's our resident, like a uh, Bitcoiner inside. I, I, we saw you like look to your your right or left, whatever direction, where I'm sure you have like a Bloomberg screen and you're, you're talking the lingo and you know what's happening in that world. And one of the things that came up when we started thinking about on-ramp was finding out um, – from folks between BlackRock and Citadel that BlackRock had institutional demand, but they did not want to face, quote unquote, like Web 2, Web 3 companies and Coinbase fell into that. This is even before FTX blew up. And so part of that was the EDX formation, which came from, again, Fidelity, Citadel, and Charles Schwab. And so that all sounds good until you realize like the back end engine of that was uh, Paxos, and I think they were even going to leverage them for custody. I don't. I guess that's kind of changed now because they're marketing themselves as like a decentralized exchange, and they're going to have like the settlement somewhere else. And maybe it is Paxos still. Uh, but regardless of if it's Paxos or not, the reality is all these custodians are the same thing. It's just, you know, no, there's no difference between Coinbase, FTX custody, or Paxos. And uh, the reality is that like looking at this and seeing what happened in the past few years had this realization that we're just going to see this orders of magnitude larger, whether it's the rehypothecation from BlackRock or someone else or the centralization of the assets uh, and just the similar, like just destruction of capital that happened. And so one of the things that I'm just curious on your side, Matt, is what do you think's changed with that? Uh, Cause you talked about the dance with the SEC and, and, you know, now they're letting, you know, the firms come in and it, like, there feels like there's something with Coinbase, like, 
bending the knee that that is happening in the background of like okay blackrock you know we're here we're going to use coinbase they have the infrastructure um but like it's almost like we own you at this point because at the other side we're talking about fees the structure of the fees completely kneecap exchanges when it comes to the compression of fees within an etf and so there goes coinbase you know liquidity and, and trading fees when it comes to that along with a bunch of other exchanges so i'm curious if, do you think anything's changed or what's happened over the course of the past six months where coinbase is now looked at as a counterparty that institutional investors are going to be willing to trust with their bitcoin so i think over the last we say 15 months right last spring um what was a point in time where you had a lot of filings going out uh, but they were getting pulled and you know this is pretty well known i was looking to you know, find some some solution uh, on top, like build around Bitcoin. Like this is, you know, how we got to this point where we are today with this with this private placement offering or private placement that we have. Uh, I've talked about with the unchained Bitcoin back loans, uh, but we were looking at evaluating. You know, how do you, how do you go through this process? What what could we bring to market? Um, and in that process, you talk to lawyers um, and you see what everybody else is doing. And we were told, I think it was last March or April. It's like don't even, don't file here. Uh, we had another asset manager who just, you know, submitted a filing, and they were told to to pull it back. Like the, they were asked by the SEC to to withdraw. Um, it's not a rejection. It's just like, just don't do this right now. So it was kind of known, at least from what we were told by our lawyers who were plugged in with the capital markets. This is what they do. You know, big law firms. They said just just pull back. This is this is just you know hot stove. Do not touch this right now. And then as of this week, right, it's like, oh, we're, we're back, we're game on. So I don't know if it's, you know, tied to certain shoes dropping over the last 15 months where we've seen certain players like the leverage build up in the system, um, you know, people doing things on, on building on top of unsound practices, those going wrong um, and, and getting exposed. Or if it's just kind of learning where within the, um, you know, the X's and O's or the just the the. the the, the the black text on the white paper. How do you how do you map uh, this offering, right? If we have this goal, like everybody's known about this prize that's sitting there for someone to go get uh, to have a, an exchange traded offering uh, with actual UTXO, like spot Bitcoin, I guess is the term uh, pe- people use. Um, who is the first one who can take that hill? Like you're you're sitting on you know, a revenue stream of fees and commissions. And this is the way Wall Street has kind of viewed it um, and known about it for a while. But is it an element of like the right things had to happen? Uh, the right regulatory actions were taken the right backroom, you know, meetings were made. I don't know that. Um, or is it just they figured out how to how to submit the filing uh, to increase their, their prospects of, hey, we think we can get this thing. Uh, through the door and make this happen. I don't know. It could be could be a bit of both. We we don't know as as the outside observers, but you know it could could be somewhere in between. But it it went from I would say like the the temperature went from do not touch this thing 15 months ago to now you see what happened. One BlackRock went, and then now you had a land rush. I, I don't know exactly the number who came out uh, with uh, follow-on filings, and I know Wisdom Tree. I think it's six. Six, yeah. So it's yeah. it's back on again. They're going for the land rush, and you know this isn't going to change. Uh, the like, I don't know if we're still in a bear market. I would just assume we are until uh, until we hit another all time high. But you know it's getting ready for the land grab. You can see, you know, they're they're, they're positioning for the next bull market. Yeah, it's really interesting again because 
I tweeted this out earlier today and Jesse, I mean, you alluded to it with the rehypothecation and on-ramp has obviously created the custody of the Bitcoin held in the on-ramp trust in a very specific way to leverage Bitcoin's native properties, particularly multi-sig. And that's what's going to be incredibly fascinating to watch play out over the next three to five years is Wall Street getting acquainted with the technology side of Bitcoin. Like, how do you custody this? Custody this? Do you use a third party? Do you use multiple third parties? And it's going to be fun watching Wall Street learn these lessons because yeah. as we know, Bitcoin has these native properties that make it very easy to build sound and secure financial products on chain, particularly with multi-sig that uh, Wall Street doesn't seem to grok yet, obviously with Blockstream, or excuse me, BlackRock, not Blockstream, uh, using Coinbase as custody, that is a signal that they sort of don't get it yet as they probably should. Um, and that's like another aspect that's thrown into it. Like we are so early, Bitcoin has these native properties that really don't map to the incumbent financial and banking system. And we're so far ahead of the curve on ramp, particularly unchained companies that are leveraging multi-sig river strike are so far ahead of the chain, uh, the trend in terms of native security of Bitcoin. Um, and so let's just touch on that. Like why on ramp, I know we explained it in the past, but I think juxtaposing it to the BlackRock filing and their offering, if it gets approved is, is really important for people to understand and, intuitively grasp because the decision to allocate to one trust with a certain security model versus another uh, is a pretty big one. Yeah. So, well, I'll, I'll cover off a little bit, a little bit more on the BlackRock side of, we touched on rehypothecation. There are two other problems that come up with how they're approaching custody and governance. Um, and one is who's allowed to do in-kind redemptions. What's that redemption process like? The other is what happens in the event of forks. Um, and it, together, those three uh, problems are emblematic of how Wall Street has yet to appreciate that Bitcoin has these properties that uh, protect uh, client rights uh, and by minimizing counterparty risk um, or, or, you know, making making it easier to audit and, 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 and control and see um, and limit the ability to rehypothecate this asset um, because it can live on chain. It can live in a multi-sig vault where three different parties control that vault and two are necessary to affect control. Um, and, and, and then that prohibits the ability to do any funny business, any rehypothecation because you can't lend it unless you have the agreement of, of multiple institutions involved, um, which is how on-ramp is built, uh, but it is not how um, BlackRock is doing things because as a custo their custodian model is they're handing it to Coinbase. Um, so now you've got two counterparties stacked up here. You've, you, you've got BlackRock uh, and the risks there with them as a counterparty. And, and then you've got Coinbase as, as your custodian and the counterparty risk there, um, and and that is not as good as diversifying your um, counterparty risk by splitting it in, into three different keys in a multi-sig quorum. Um, so 
yeah, the, the in-kind redemptions problem with BlackRock's model is that the, you're only allowed to withdraw in-kind um, your Bitcoin if you are an authorized participant, which means a registered broker-dealer firm that has entered a separate contract with BlackRock um, and, with, and, and is in the good graces of BlackRock at that point in time. So that obviously is a, sh is a list of, of firms with that right that can shift and, and can go to zero depending on what BlackRock wants to do. Um, and that's, that reduces the rights of the end client to access their Bitcoin versus what's possible. Uh, the other problem here is the forks situation where there's a kind of a large section in BlackRock's filing that specifies that in the event of a Bitcoin fork, BlackRock asserts the right to determine which fork is the real one uh, and which one they will honor. Uh, and the one that's not real in their mind, they can ignore or sell off the, those assets depending on what they want to do, um, which is problematic because this is BlackRock and they're the originator of the ESG score concept. Um, it's them. That's that's their thing, <laughs> and you know, it's ESG. The ESG score is effectively a, a, a capitalist social credit system. Um, and it's not really capitalist. It's pretty communist. Well, it's it's a so, social credit system for wrapped in capitalism. You know, Marty, um, Marty's a big fan of ESG, so we gotta. <laughs> Let's see my shitty <laughs> grin here as I. <laughs> yeah. And so you play that forward, you can obviously see a scenario where um, BlackRock would, you know, BlackRock, let's say BlackRock's trust ends up becoming a very large holder of Bitcoin. Uh, then they get some pressure from the government to, you know, impose a change on Bitcoin to fork it um, and create an ESG friendly Bitcoin or, or call it green Bitcoin, whatever. Um, and now you're looking at a Bitcoin cash scenario where there's corporate interests pushing for a fork, but now it's not like small time players. This is BlackRock and the US government pushing this fork and, and they're holding hostage a lot of the institutions that have um, gotten Bitcoin exposure through this trust. Uh, and, and that becomes a scarier fight than, than Bitcoin cash was. Uh, and that's all because in this document, BlackRock asserts that right, and it's just in legalese and hard to really see the threat there, but it's there, and it doesn't need to be that way. And so, you know, on-ramp, on-ramp's model is to use that grantor trust model, which is excellent, but to leverage um, Bitcoin's properties of custody and governance to deliver best-in-class custody through the the multi-party custody solution that we have where we have three institutions holding a key to, to um, our vaults and two of those institutions are qualified custodians and it should all be about the rights of the client to access um, and control their Bitcoin and not about a permission system where you have to be in the good graces of, of BlackRock um, who can change the rules at any time and can impose their politicized desires um, to, to petition for change with, you know, a fork in Bitcoin's code.
Yeah, and just to like expand on that, I think uh, Marty's thread was or tweet earlier was uh, a little inspired from conversations we have in the sense of like there's there's two parts, and this is like one of the funnest times to just be involved in all of this stuff because we're, we're basically if you if somebody's been working in the space or looking at it, they've seen this stuff play out. We we know how this how this ends. So Jesse to to game out what Jesse just alluded to, the closest at least in my mind um, parallel was BlockFi. And uh, the lending model that they had, and we experienced this at Unchain Capital on the lending desk, where in nominal terms it was more expensive to go and take a loan from Unchain versus BlockFi. And what we experienced is, you know, having those conversations, and we'd explain that nominally it, it costs a little more to take a loan, but risk adjusted, it's a lot more expensive to take the BlockFi loan. Because we understood and people that, you know, it's just an asymmetry in information, what Jesse just alluded to. It's the market not fully understanding, one, that this is a different kind of asset. There are no bailouts in Bitcoin. You can't print more Bitcoin if the Bitcoin is lost, stolen, hacked, uh, or you're rehypothecating and, you know, the tie goes out and you're, you're caught short. But in the same situation in BlockFi, over the course of years, we would start to see more individuals realize um, as that information was disseminated in the market, oh, this isn't the right way. I want to know my Bitcoin's on chain. I want to know I'm, I'm willing to pay that additional, you know, extra bips um, to know that the Bitcoin sits there. It's not being relent out. And it was really fascinating because during the conversations over the course of years, it, we would say the difference, or I would personally say, and I felt it was a bold statement, but I believed it. I didn't know it would happen so quick is that the difference between, you know, block fine and chain's market cap was simply in the, the delta between information as similar as like Bitcoin becoming money. It's just understanding of all the things that individuals have spent the time looking at. And, you know, little, we know like 12 months later, whatever the, the time frame was that BlockFi, you know, basically enterprise value is zero or negative. And uh, I think of the, the, it sounds like blasphemy and it's crazy to even say it, but I feel like very similar to any structure that goes against the principles that we're talking about here with uh, Bitcoin and the centralization, like this is an asset that doesn't have to be held in the old way. We don't have to map the old world to it. And part of Marty's tweet earlier was talking about, you know, qualified custodian. I, I, don't know, I don't know it verbatim, but it was basically referring to like, there are legal confines in, in regulatory uh, structures that we have to adhere to. We're, we're US citizens and there, there's things to offer financial products. But at the same time, there's a way to offer those with also staying close, as close to Bitcoin's principles that allow for the longevity of the custody and um, just being able to hold that asset, right? It's very easy to buy Bitcoin. It's hard to hold it long term through the volatility exchange tax and everything that we know. And so I think that's very important because there's plenty of people out there that will tout, oh, because it's in a trust structure or because it's in a qualified custodian or because it's BlackRock. But at the end of the day, like Bitcoin has shown over 13 years, that it doesn't matter who's holding it unless you do it in the right way. Uh, your Bitcoin is at risk of being gone and being gone forever because you can't make more of it. And I think that's the fundamental thing that we see with BlackRock is people that have looked at Bitcoin long enough that there's no world where BlackRock holds a lot of Bitcoin, call it hundreds of thousands, not millions, that it ends up good for the people that are putting their dollars in and thinking they have Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, my tweet earlier was like, you can check all the legal boxes, you meet qualified custodian, you can read all, meet all the SEC's regulations, all the banking regulations, but if you don't crock Bitcoin security and build your product around Bitcoin's native properties, there's no legal checkbox in the world that can save you from losing people's Bitcoins. Security yeah, and that, that, 
that key point like is uh the liabilities and asset mismatch like the common thought that came up about BlockFi, even and I, I was part of it, was like, well, if BlockFi has a, a hole or a zero, like Peter Thiel, they'll back them up, they'll, they'll, they'll fill it. And that common thought happens now with Fidelity or BlackRock that um, if something happens, if they're hacked, if uh, you know there's a mismatch in you know the rehypothecation, lending, whatever might happen, there's such large institutions that they'll backfill. But if you think about it, the idea is if, if somebody's holding that asset, then they're looking at the price to go 10x, 100x, whatever the number is. And at some threshold, it's they're upside down in what they're holding versus the enterprise value. And at that point, that's where the question happens. One, if they're, if they're hacked like, or something happens to the funds, it's, it's more than likely a zero. But then also, and this ties in, I was having this conversation earlier, to being able to take redemptions. Because if that price appreciates, then there's this like stance in Bitcoin. You should always think about your uh, MBK touts. I don't know exactly where it came from, but it's just the thought that, you know, you always want to think about your security model as if the price of Bitcoin is 10x what it is today because it inevitably will. And then you're going to, you don't want to be scrambling when it does that. And similarly with having it with BlackRock, you can imagine an institution or endowment that allocates a billion dollars, whatever the number is, and now it's 10 billion and BlackRock's holding trillions, and you're thinking, wait, this doesn't make much sense, but you're stuck because you can't take it. And we've seen what happens when people stuck with GBTC. So like Jesse's piece was great because it really laid out the the, the fundamental things that we thought about with OnRamp and the, and the difference between what BlackRock got and the, the visual of the, the bike with one wheel while it's stuck uh, with a square, whatever the square thing was, a, a rock maybe, uh, was very apt in explaining you know, how our, our vehicle moves. Yeah. And Matt... Did I catch it correctly earlier? Were you about to go into the potential duration mismatches that could arise if they do rehypothecate? I was going to talk about the creation of redemption. Like oh, just that's, there, but yeah. just to copy, just to echo on what Michael's saying, like the the the, the risk, right? You're, you're on on the back end of a fund, financial product, et cetera. Like your your weakest links in the entire process, right? They're going to take you out. Um, Financial industry is built on risk. Like it is a risky business, um, period. And any point that you do not understand where the risk is, it will build up. And when things go wrong, that's that's when the stretchers and, and body bags get built out. So to some degree, you're playing with fire here, right? And it's not just Bitcoin, uh, you, you know, wrapping it uh, in these layers in the industry and applying just in a lever- leverage capital market system. Um, Michael mentioned, do you come in and just fill in the hole as soon as you you run into a situation where, hey, your company you know, took on risks it didn't understand or wasn't aware of. Now you're in a situation where you need to go out and raise more capital. Well, yeah, you ask Peter Thiel, maybe he'll fill it in. Uh, but in a system where you're running at 12 to 1 or 15 to 1 leverage on average, um, if you don't understand the kind of uranium that you're playing with or, or poking at, like, you got to be careful. And I, I don't think we fully thought, th- thought through all of the things um, that could go wrong with putting actual UTXOs into an ETF, ETF, like fully liquid 24 seven with elastic create redeem. Um, you mentioned the authorized participants as like a point of failure, Jesse, uh, in terms of um, kind of like a, a exclusionary, right? Like I get to choose who's in here. Uh, but I think it, it goes beyond that. It's it's mechanical, right? If you're looking at how the creation redemption 
mechanism works, right? When I, when I say those words, like that's what makes the ETF special is that um, you can be perpetually like open as, as, a, as a pooled fund and trade it on an exchange because you assume these um, authorized participants in, in tandem with the market makers who do the actual trading against um, your your um, retail or institutional clients, right, who are moving in and out and trading shares in your fund. Um, the authorized participant is the one firm who can uh, create or redeem baskets of shares is the way it works. So the way our firm has an ETF, so I had to learn about all of this, uh, there's people who do this for their living, 20, 30 years of experience, like they know this inside and out way better than I do. Uh, but I understand like the kind of the, like the practical elements of this. Like I've, I've actually sat at the keyboard and process these these trades, these create and redeems. What happens with the with the AP is like they'll get an order from the market makers. They'll, they they understand supply and demand and they know like the share count need to go up or down and then they'll create a new basket. So one basket will be, I think for the for the filing, it said 40,000 shares. Yeah. It starts at its share price of 25. That's a million dollars in assets per basket. So let's say an authorized participant, like we're starting at zero shares, so you got to create baskets. Um, they'll say, we need a million dollars worth of UTXOs. There's no other asset that you can get to put it in this basket, right? You have to deliver Bitcoin UTXOs, right? And there's some degree, like if we ever get into a... Um, kind of a bar fight, what is the chain? What amounts to UTXL? Well, it's also BlackRock's decision what makes it in there, right? What, what goes in the basket if it's a fork? You've got to go get those. You got to show them. And, you know, the, these weights and measures, like here's the price, 40,000 40, shares worth, 1025, a million dollars uh, worth of uh, worth of UTXOs. You put those in the basket. Now, you, you, you check this against a market where if you look at the dynamics and you look at like the, the you know, really good kind of analysts we have in this space this is something that's like unique to Bitcoin that other assets don't have. Like you have an open source community of, of analysts. Like you've got Dylan McClare out there and Rational Root and people putting together good work and know this industry, I think, better than, than uh, you know, the entry level analysts and senior analysts that, that are even on the street. But you look at a market where the available supply for trade probably peaked in, in Q1 of like 2020 or 2021 in the last cycle, you're declining. What happens in, in your creation basket when now you need to go create shares and you go into a, a spot market where available uh, supply to trade is, is dwindling, right? You gotta go get those. And at some point this market, like if you just follow the logic, like where this looks like it's going, like it looks like five to 10 years from now, could, you know, give or take, who knows when that day comes, but it, it, it looks like this is a market with a reasonable probability of, you know, the, the market going no offer. And then what do you do? Like you're, you're in this situation, like, Hey, did you lend shares out? Like we can't create anymore. Uh, we can't go get UTXOs. I, I mean, I, I don't think we've really thought about all these things and there's so many different ways for this to go wrong, uh, from a product standpoint. Um, and if you're looking in the rear view mirror, you've just seen, you know, each cycle it starts with Mount Gox and then everybody, there's always a body bag. Um, yeah. There's a lot of risk here. I think, I think you nailed it there where like wall street is going to burn their hand on the stove. And it's a question of, do they do that sooner? Like sooner or later, if they do it soon enough where the hole that they create from, you know, not treating Bitcoin with the appropriate level of respect um, is fillable. If they can fill that hole, 
uh, the, then maybe they'll learn their lesson and not rehypothecate, for example. Um, but you could end up in a scenario where even these giants, like BlackRock, could. There's a very plausible scenario of um, BlackRock manages to, to ingest a million Bitcoin into this fund. Um, and 10 years from now, the price of Bitcoin is a million dollars per Bitcoin. So that, that's a trillion dollar fund. Um, and if they if in some crash that happens then um, and they've been rehypothecating and they're caught swimming without any clothes on, um, that hole is bigger than the enterprise value, what Michael was getting at earlier, of that entire business, the, you know, the biggest behemoth on Wall Street. And, you know, the, Bitcoin has the potential to take out every institution on Wall Street that doesn't learn to respect it soon enough. Yeah, and I think another thing, going back to the custody model, depending on Coinbase, a single custodian, and Matt, you brought up like individual UTXOs, and that's the thing with allocating your custody to Coinbase. Like the Coinbase is not going to... Uh, like be registering those UTXs. You're not gonna be able to go to like the filings of the BlackRock fund and find the individual ET or UTXOs where the shares are held. I find it very hard to believe. I don't think Coinbase does that for Grayscale right now or GBTC. Um, and so it's bad for two reasons. Number one, in the event of a fork, like BlackRock can number one, choose what they deem to be uh, Bitcoin, the true Bitcoin. And then since you don't have visibility into the individual UTXOs that the fund actually owns, uh, they could say, all right, we're just going to run with this, this fork as Bitcoin and we're not going to do anything, uh, with the other fork and they could market sell that and not tell their customers and just, just rake all that in, in a way. But the market will know that like you'll stop getting a bid. And once they're like, no, this, this, this BlackRock chain, like we've got them. These, these, these are good UTXOs. No, it'll show up in the market price. Yes. You, yeah. you know what you just made me think of Marty? Uh, so there's, there's something interesting without going too far, like down the rabbit hole of Coinbase basically being blessed with this. Cause it is a blessing like that. They, they're going to hold this. They're going to get you know fees. There's a lot happening from that. And we've always had these thoughts or discussions like the government really can't like build custody solutions in the same way they can't actually build whatever currency that is going to be digital. And so there'd be like this public-private partnership. And that's what Coinbase feels like in this world in a similar circle. And if you take that further, it's like BlackRock basically owns Circle and Coinbase now. The problem with that is Coinbase outside of the fund and it amassing a million BTC Coinbase holds, what, what's the number right now of Bitcoin outside of just in general, like between Zappo, GBTC, and Coinbase? Is it like 2.2 million or something? Yeah, it's above 2 million. Yeah, so th- there's, a, there's a big problem here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, Alan Farrington included that in his, his excellent piece about the BlackRock product. He, he enumerates eight reasons to be worried uh, about this, uh, and and one of them is is that the BlackRock is you know so interconnected with the U.S. government that um, uh, using Coinbase as their custody provider effectively is going to like you know, bring um, Coinbase into the government's control uh, in terms of what you know what they're doing <laughs> if they weren't already. Um, 
one of four, one of eight facets and uh, to be worried about with regard to BlackRock's product. Um, yeah, but on top of the three that that I enumerated, which which weren't actually um, called out in his, weren't fully called out in his uh, excellent piece that called uh, "Trust Me, Bro." <laughs> it was an excellent name for an article. I mean, yeah. it's a very interesting five to ten business days when you think about Coinbase sued, you know, whatever Binance. Let's not even count that, and then BlackRock ETF blessing Coinbase with it. Like that doesn't, you know, they're all talking to the same people. The SEC is involved in all of this. The government, you know, it doesn't. Uh, there's just it's a very interesting dynamic to now think that BlackRock is working with Coinbase that holds two point two million BTC. Yeah. So do you think upstarts like OnRamp can compete with Wall Street? You think this is a move to sort of box out the the startup culture in Bitcoin and let the adults in the room come in? Or are they going to be forced yeah. to let us compete? You know, I, we're, an, we're an ant to, to BlackRock. We're, we're nothing. Um, but from the perspective of a client, you can still choose, you know, whether you want to have a bike that, has this good wheel, this good normal wheel, the grantor trust model. It's a good fit for Bitcoin. Um, and then a square wheel, uh, which is the custody and governance that BlackRock is bringing in. You can choose that, that you, that can be your option. If you're, if you're, if you don't want to take on self custody and you want to get direct exposure to Bitcoin while leaving yourself open to, you know, eventually taking self custody without a taxable event, your options are that BlackRock vehicle, one good wheel, one square wheel, um, or a Bitcoin native investment vehicle like OnRamp, where we've got the good wheel, same thing, but you also have Bitcoin native custody through multi-sig, through multi-party um, vaults. And that is genuinely a better investment vehicle for pre- preserving you as the client, your rights um, and minimizing your risks in that process, because BlackRock is introducing a lot of risks in, in how they're going to govern this fund. And it doesn't need to be that way. And it shouldn't be that way. And, and Bitcoiners uh, like us at OnRamp um, want to make want to bring people into Bitcoin the right way. And, and empower them to take self-custody when they want um, and help them preserve their rights and access to th- this uh, this asset and not tr- try to dupe anybody into ESG coin. And sorry, this is what you get um, because you got ex- exposure to Bitcoin through BlackRock. Now you're holding BlackRock ESG Bitcoin. Um, doesn't need to be that way. And it's, it's ultimately up to the individual and the institution to decide what they value. Do you want to go with the big name of BlackRock? And frankly, most institutions will do that because, you know, BlackRock's clients will probably get exposure to, to Bitcoin through BlackRock rather than upstart on ramp. But every individual and every institution can make that choice for themselves. I think Jesse's a little more bearish on on OnRamp than, than I am. I uh, <laughs> I tend where where I've been having a lot of fun is again this is like pattern recognition of what we just you know did. We we've seen this whether it's an Unchained or River. When you think about all of this stuff from first principles, it's very Darwinistic in the sense of like whether you choose 
the right money or, or the wrong money. Uh, you know, as we allude to Parker's you know, greatest asymmetry, it's not only to the upside, it's the downside. So if you make the wrong decision, you can't insulate yourself from it in the same way from the product. So, you know, the idea is like, we need the keys to be distributed, Bitcoin for it to work. It, it's that is going to have to happen. And let's say we game out Bitcoin successful, then your decision on where you secure the Bitcoin is going to be the difference between you holding Bitcoin long-term and not. And we just seen this play out over the past five years, whether it's the lending example with BlockFi and Unchain or, you know, custody and thinking about building your own infrastructure like River or whatever's happening at Prime Trust. Like it's, it's, this is the, where I'm bullish is like on the education because that's what this game's going to be for the next 10 years. We're dealing with alien technology, a new asset, and it's up to us to be able to disseminate and explain that. And, you know, credit to Jesse Parker, individuals that are able to pull from their traditional finance backgrounds, along with understanding, deep understanding of Bitcoin and monetary theory and all the things that go along with it and articulating that to individuals. And you couple that with a product that's native and that it's inherently native. When you look at it, it's like, do you want a single institution holding it? There's no difference at the end of the day, whether it's BlackRock, Coinbase, FTX, BlockFi, or any institution that's single, or do you want to use the native properties that reduce that? counterparty risk and from a game theoretical perspective especially if you do it from a jurisdictional perspective you're not adherent to a single institution or somebody rugging you from that key over time the best product's going to win it's a free market and so uh i again having lived this the past few years in previous roles in this space i don't i see that it's just education that it all comes down to and then the market takes care of the rest well that's why we're here gentlemen to educate that's why the last trade exists I completely agree with you, Michael. I think that's the, I don't want to say maybe, maybe wall street may have an innovator's dilemma on their hand where they're too massive and due to uh, the regulatory environment, they're not able to move as quickly with these unique custody models that exist with multi-institution multi-sig who knows, maybe the regulators will get smart and they'll be able to move more nimbly, but I'm not going to hold my breath for that. Um, and I, I think that's the beauty of the time we live in right now, the inflection point we live in. There's a land grab going on. Wall Street's going for their grab right now. We would argue on the show that they're they're approaching it the wrong way. And because they're doing that, we view it as a massive opportunity to do it the right way and show people how to do it the right way and educate people on what the right way is, which is why we're here. Um, is there anything with the BlackRock filing we want to we want to tie the knot on here because I think we should. One, th- one thing I do want to add is um, we've been doing like, forget about like the fund or we've been talking to folks, uh, whether on the union side or people that are managing this money, like everybody, these funds that are allocating capital are made of real people. Maybe this ties in the transition to what Matt's working on and also just his understanding of the mismatch with, you know, social security pensions, endowments that uh, when it comes to the conversation, this is people's money that they're, they're managing and that they need to think they're from a fiduciary. And so as the education happens, um, that's part of it is that these are real people that they have returns that they have to, they're responsible for. And if they don't have to take that counterparty risk, given all the things we just talked about, definitely they shouldn't if they care. And so there's a lot here that we're going to be able to do um, to help a lot of these funds. And then we all know like the sooner you're in the better for, you know, the return, um, so that's really where, as I, I've been going about the past couple of weeks, it's like there's a real duty to help educate these large pools of capital because somebody on the other end of it is depending on it uh, for their retirement 
among social security and other things that are associated. I was, I was just going to close on this, this one out. I think, um, I don't think there's ever been kind of a situation like this. Maybe there is a case study we can find in history where the, the playing field on this new paradigm tilts towards the individual, not the scale player, not the, you know, large pool fund. This is hard to do to map Bitcoin onto the legacy, uh, like the legacy infrastructure. Like you're, you're, you're going to keep seeing it. There are going to be problems. You know, you rip up the floorboards like, oh, we didn't, we didn't think about that. Uh, but if you're an individual, it's super easy. Um, to, to onboard, figure this out. It does take homework. Um, you, you do have to put the time in, but you know, there's never been more, I would say just alpha on the table for you. If you do buy in, you're going to, you're, you'd make that choice to onboard onto Bitcoin. Um, you know, learn, learn, learn how to do seed words, you know, learn how to use a sign device, like a cold card, um, you know, go to one of these onsite events, do a workshop, um, and take personal responsibility. So that, I'd say that's, that's, the hugely bullish thing is you as an individual um, have a have a table set in front of you where personal responsibility has never been more rewarded, I'd say, in this framework, as opposed to, you know, so many other facets in, in life right now where you can take as much personal responsibility as you want. Like I can, you know, diet, exercise, get enough sleep at night, try to stay healthy my health insurance premiums are going to go up just like everybody else is 10 to 15% a year. Right. Um, I can't do anything about that. Uh, it's, it's just a complete change in paradigm, uh, one system versus the other. So I think that's the extremely bullish thing here is if you do choose to opt out of, uh, you know, your, your existing option, your existing financial, uh, investment choices. We'll talk about this, what people are invested in and saving and for, for retirement. If you choose to come play in this game over here, um, game's not the right word. Dude. This this new system, uh, this emergent system, um, personal responsibility carries, I mean, it's, it's free alpha. It's the complete opposite of what you're used to. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'd go so far as to say that the people who do that, who take on that you know, the, the scary elements of the new and, and learn about Bitcoin, do their homework and, and take on personal responsibility here. Um, I think that that could be the deciding factor between whether middle class individuals get to retire ever or not. And and it's I I see that as where all of this is moving towards. And I think we can dig into Matt your work on this about asset classes and and individual um, net worths. Marty, did you, uh, you and Logan want to throw up the slides we went over? Did you want to recent rehash any of those, or just open end discussion? Uh, I think we'll start with open end discussion. Just how bad is the retirement situation? Private retirement account. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I've heard you talk about this too on other podcasts you've been on, maybe uh, the Citadel Des Dispatch episode with Matt O'Dell. You, you talked about the same the same things. Um, where does the middle class, like where, where, where have they been trained to, to accumulate and, and preserve purchasing power uh, for retirement? And it's two things. It's their homes. It's the primary residence. And that's the big one. Uh, we can talk, talk about the housing market a bit. And then it's retirement accounts, right? So you've seen this, this whole infrastructure built out, you know, since ERISA, um, 
it's a you know government acronym, uh, but an act uh, passed by Congress in I think the 70s uh, to to put a, an oversight layer over retirement plans. And then after that, uh, like the 80s, they they the, the IRS, the tax code was um, or the revenue code was implemented to make these like tax favored treatment accounts where you could either get a benefit in a kind of a traditional uh, standpoint, like a regular 401k versus or, or IRA versus like the Roth. And it's all amounts to do you either pay the tax today um, in a Roth and then save, you know, over your working years into retirement and then. Presumably, you won't have to pay tax when you turn 65, or you know, whenever you hit that retirement minimum distribution age. It's a, it's a move, it's a, you know, moving goalposts on on when that comes home. Uh, or is it you get a tax benefit each paycheck where you can contribute to this account, you know, uh, every biweekly or monthly paycheck, um, and not take a tax uh, hit uh, on like right away. You get a tax deduction, and then you save, and then you pay the tax at the end. But it was, it was, it's really been a system that's built out in, uh, in the incentive since the early 80s uh, to get people to save in this vehicle and financial assets, uh, build up a nest egg. Um, and then, uh, you know, ideally, if everything works, you hit 65 or, you know, that number just keeps going up 70 and a half now, maybe 72 the next time we hit um, uh, a new SECURE Act. Um, do you have that nest egg built up? And that's presumably w what's going to make up the bulk of your, you know, consumption needs. In retirement, right? You have no more income other than you can have your financial assets producing income, uh, but you have no labor income. Um, and that's a model that over like a 40-year bull market in financial assets, where kind of you you were you were leaning into growth for most of it, right? The 80s, 90s, boomers finally worked their way fully into the work the workforce. So you got a lot of earners, a lot of a lot of. Uh, you know, paychecks, if you show them in the aggregate, your workforce is rising, you got a lot of income coming in, and then every month there's just a bid in, in the stock market uh, and a bid for bonds, uh, and rates are coming lower. So everything's just going up for, for 40 years. That model worked. And then what, what happens, you know, once you're on the other side of that mountain and all of those fundamental drivers start going into, into reverse? Um, and that's, you know, that's... It's a really concerning problem if you're looking on a like a forward horizon when you see, you know, the the waves of baby boomers. Like we heard about this, like we knew it was coming. Ten thousand retirees per day, um, and it's here. And you're looking at the metrics. I have this pulled up. I won't screen share. Um, Ken, if you want to. Okay. Yeah, I, I do love that math. point though. I love that point of like now there's a lack of bid. Uh, there's been a bid every paycheck for 40 years and now that, that bid is kind of diminishing, huh? Yeah. Do, can you guys see this? Yeah. Logan's going to pull it up now. He's got it. Oh, cool. Let me know if you want me to change the dimensions. And, and for everybody out there too, like this is all in the context of interest rates. Like in 1981, interest rates were 15%, you know, a mortgage rate was 17%. Um, so the value of homes couldn't be that much. Uh, and we've had a, a pretty straight, more or less straight line decline for 30 years of interest rates going from 15% to zero and then stayed there for 10 years. And only in the last year have, have we seen actual interest rates back again. Um, but that decline is fuel for financial assets to get bid up because 
the uh, discounted cash flow valuation models that underpin all these asset valuations, um, they benefit when the discount rate is dropping you know, because the future cash flows um, from that asset, whether that's a company or a, a rental property, you have to discount them less as the, the interest rates are dropping um, in, over time. So that, that structural um, force for 30 years, 40 years really helped bid up financial assets to, uh, to the sky. So sorry, Matt, you can take it back now. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. And then once you see, it's like, are we through it, right? Are we on that other side of the mountain? You can't call it while you're in real time. That's just not how, I mean, any, anybody does it. You can't call it top, call it bottom. You don't know for sure until, you know, three years, five years, 10 years have passed maybe. Um, but if you're looking at this data and what's happened since, you know, we got that, that, that COVID deceleration, right? This, this credit bubble wanted to deflate upon itself. Uh, and then we had to take the monetary policy and fiscal policy actions that took place, right? Um, you look at what's happened in the, the main asset classes that make up a retirement account, right? It's just stocks and bonds. That's all you can buy in there. And you look at kind of the mother of all fiscal and monetary stimulus, and that only put these markets, or at least the bond market, into um, kind of like a preservation mode for, I want to say like four months. Like they, they, they pulled out the bazookas late March. Bond market topped in early August, so right, they pulled, pulled four months basically uh, of uh, uh, kind of like a rally there holding up bond prices. And then it's just been leakage ever since. The bond markets have been selling off. I know everybody's kind of calling like we're going to hit recession. Bond markets will, or, or yields will come in. Um, you know, maybe that's maybe that's in front of us somewhere. With six months, twelve months, eighteen months, you know, what have you. This is the most kind of like called for recession in history, I think. Um, but you still see bonds selling off. Like I'm, you know, for our existing funds accounts. Like what we're trying to do is solve the this looming problem hitting hitting fixed income allocations. Um, and I trade these things every day and you just keep seeing yields come up, like bids are backing off on, it's not just you know the treasury curve, it's, it's front end corporate issuers, right? You might see names that seem rock solid, like at the beginning of this year, United Healthcare, I mean, I could just throw out names. It's like these yields wouldn't budge, it seemed like, and then all of a sudden they do. So it's like the, the, the levies just keep breaking and I don't, I, no one knows how this how this plays out over this cycle, but it just at, at this point, from my perspective, having the the hands on the keyboard with like just watching these things all day, um, it, it's it's not slowing down, right? So, anyway, the thing I wanted to share on these these asset classes, what I did is I took the total return indices for the Bloomberg ad, uh, S and P five hundred total returns, will include dividends, and then Bitcoin. And then you take the, that ratio, total return, and then you divide it by the CPI index, right? Not the, not the, you know, hey, it's 9% year over year. No, it's the actual index, like they chart it, <laughs> and it just goes up and to the right. And that's, that's kind of your proxy for what's your purchasing power of your, let's say, dollar asset savings in that investment class. So... We can choose like any any starting point you want, like just roll it back forward before, you know, we even knew COVID was a thing. December 31st, 2019, you're going to get a similar, similar result. 
Uh, but I chose this when the bond market started to sell off in August of 2020. Um, it's been, it, and it hasn't uh, kind of bounced uh, since. And your bond purchasing power is down, it says 24.48%. So you're, you've lost almost a quarter of your purchasing power in that allocation to investment grade bonds. Um, when I say investment grade, that's just wow. the, the category of bonds that kind of the street analyst, the consensus is these are, you know, they're, they're investable. They shouldn't be a, a significant credit risk, right? So that, that stack, it's lost you 25% as a whole. What that's made up of, it's made up of U.S. government and agency debt. It's made up of investment grade corporates and then investment grade securitized. So think about like uh, mortgage backed security holdings, just pooled and securitized into a bond fund. That's what goes in there, down 25%. In, since since August 2020? Since August 2020, right. So since wow. that stimulus, that it's it, it, like it could work through at least the financial markets and then and things just... Yeah. So of course, from Meanwhile, there. Bitcoin's up 200% in that same time period. Uh, dollar price, yeah. Uh, we'll go. So S and P 500. I'll get to Bitcoin third. S and P 500. It's up 6.64% total. So about it says 2.37% annually. So once you haircut for purchasing power preservation, growing your purchasing power saving in the S and P 500 since August 2020, 2.37%. And Bitcoin, even after. You know, a massive drawdown. Like, where did it get to from November 2021 to November 2022? Like the peak that was peak and trough. Um, it was a, like 85 percent drawdown. Right? So, like something pretty significant. Seventy-eight, like after, I believe. Yeah, seventy-eight. Okay. Even after that, you've got Bitcoin up 98.6 percent. Real purchasing power preservation, like mm -hmm. in that time frame, 28 uh, percent. 20.36% annualized. So uh, it's like yeah. everybody looks at things as what happened this week or this month or, you know, in the last year. Um, but uh, it's, you know, num numbers don't lie. Um, even even though it is a, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was just saying maybe uh, to take a step back on the, there's the chart on the uh, allocations that I think you had previously uh, went over with marty i think helps contextualize like taking a step back because i feel like you mentioned 2020 but 08 was really where everything started and the allocations leading up to that on the retirement and homes uh from individuals and how most got pushed there and then basically everything's gone downhill from there do you, do you have that chart to show or we can pull it up because i think that sets the stage for like the precarious situation uh from individuals right and what they're basically like their personal balance sheet is and then where it falls into uh, institutions and their investment in these different asset classes and how they're all basically not producing any return. So the the slides that Marty and I covered were in institutional, it was like American household balance sheets where right. they save um, institutional allocations. Um, that, that'd be a different set. I don't know if you if you want me to put these up, Marty uh, and Logan. I can I can I can put them on your docket if you want to if you want to play these guys. Yeah, but, that's uh, okay. This one. Yeah, if you get to the, yeah, the main one. one. Yeah, there we go. This guy. Yeah, this this gets to what we were talking about, Jesse and I earlier. Like yeah, the, the this big is the story. In the middle. It's uh, yep. those are the most broadly owned uh, assets and the only ones that have gained value for your kind of your middle class. It's primary residence and, and your retirement accounts, we were saying. Mm -hmm. um, those other three three buckets, if we're working from left to right, 
um, there's a class that's you know really limited ownership and gained value. Um, think of these as just like you own financial assets, whether it's like you you own share or you know you're an LP in a hedge fund, you own um, you have bond holdings like you own QSIPs directly. You have other pooled investment funds, or you have you have other residential real estate. So your second home, third home, etc. Those those did extremely well. Um, there's a there's a slug. Then next up, kind of on the left, it's like an orange circle. These are declining ownership and not gaining any value for the typical or the median uh, American who holds them. So number one here, CDs cash value, life insurance, saving bonds, uh, directly held stocks. That one's actually surprising. I'll, I'll, I'll walk through that a little bit. Uh, retail traders are, are like, it's known they're terrible traders, right? We kind of have this idea. The thing to do is you, you buy low, sell high. Um, this is, this is shocking actually. And like the mother of all bull markets for, 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 an equity market, any country in history, your average retail investor doesn't do well like they and this this comes into bitcoin too right we have this like this uh i guess you call it just like a fatal fall as humans we when we're when we're trying to invest or speculate right on on an asset what we do is we go and rush to buy to it when we hear the news uh then we sell it once it's down right and when we hear the news or we hear like hey bitcoin price like this week for example it's it's rallied from 24k to 30k see it in the news and you rush to your brokerage and or you know whatever coinbase or whatever you know most most americans are and how they acquire bitcoin they'll go buy then right you're buying on a distribution typically and it's 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 a really hard and rare mindset to do otherwise like not many people actually buy low in an accumulation phase and then sell high or or buy low and hold right uh, which which works well in Bitcoin too, but in stocks, this this data point here, num it's on the fourth line. It's just this tiny little arrow here. They get barely any gains, and um, it doesn't even really create wealth for for most Americans uh, when they're buying uh, just equities in um, in their brokerage accounts. So that's kind of shocking. And then other in that group is other financial assets and and other non financial. They're just catch alls in this. Like they'll. We'll pull in for financial assets like any other you know credit claims or you know there's there's oil and gas rights in some of these and then other non-financial assets will be things like uh like a commodity if you hold precious metals or you know something else some like uh anything physical like any any investment you would say that's not a not a, not a financial you know, security or, or claim if you will so I think when I look at that bucket and I see things like CDs, cash value, life insurances, savings bonds, like what I see in this or how I interpret this, um, these are kind of reflective of a of a mark or a, you know, like a product market or product space financial assets that maybe used to work for people, but they're no longer working right at, at build building and, and accumulating um, wealth through time right so. Marty and I talked um, when I was on TFTC a few weeks ago about, you know, what our grandmothers would give us for Christmas. And my grandmother gave me savings bonds and Marty's gave him CDs. It's mm -hmm. like, we're not doing that anymore. Like this is, this yeah. is a 
policy system that's that's no longer working. And I think in the, in the cash value life insurance, you see this too in the in the equities, right? Go look up LNC, you know, Lincoln. Uh, but you look at the insurers, like it's 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 not a good picture, right? If you if you yeah. think about these things in the terms of uh, businesses and markets and and where the customers are. What I, what I love about that uh, and that chart in particular is is how it kind of connects to what we as a, as a society and a culture um, propagate as investment advice to the next generation. Um, you know, us millennials, we've received the wisdom that what, all you got to do is go out there, get a job, max out your 401k, get a mortgage. You're going to do great because that's what worked for our parents. That was the winning model. That's what that, that slide shows is that's all you had to do. Just max out your 401k and pay, pay down your mortgage. And those are the two assets that were the real winners in that whole landscape um, over the last 40 years. It, what's funny about your anecdote about uh, grandparents is that for that generation, uh, CDs made more sense. It, it, those might have been the winners for them. And so that's what they are, are, are propagating as like, oh, this is a good thing to own because it, it, it'll provide security and stability in a world where you can't trust you can't trust the stock market or um, or equities or, or home values to go up. So I, I and then I can't help but look forward with regard to that. Like we've received this wisdom, max out your 401k, get a mortgage. But as we've talked about, like this is a 40 year bull market where the conditions that uh, allowed for that to happen are over. Like they can't continue. The wind has reversed uh, and now it's headwinds. There were massive tailwinds for the last 40 years. And now those asset classes in particular face headwinds. Um, And and so then the question becomes, what does win and, and what can deliver the kind of performance that housing and retirement accounts did over the last 40 years in the next 40 years. Well, the question that remains is like, are the headwinds actually stronger than the tailwinds that, that got you to this place? Cause with the retirement accounts, particularly you have like the demographic thing Matt mentioned it earlier, the 10,000 retirees a day. And so that's like for selling, uh, you have all the money printing going on. So Matt indexed those charts that we showed earlier to CPI. Like you're you're fighting inflation as well as a, a fall in the value of the assets at the same time, uh, and then it, like those two alone, like that like was the last thirty years of boomers investing in their four hundred one ks, investing in their housing. Maybe the housing market is like the last bastion of of savings for the retirement accounts, but when it comes to like financial assets outside of real estate like there was it all a mirage they, they had this false sense of security for for decades leading up to retirement let's talk about housing and just let's let's go common sense here the housing stock the american housing stock it's old it's aging like the median house like you can go look this up it's like 1980 half of the homes are built before 1980 i think exactly it might be like 1978 so it's an aging housing stock um odds are if you're a new entry buyer you know you're in your you know 25 to 40 um type of age age group right now you're gonna you're looking to buy your first home get your down payment whatever 
um, you're probably buying something from the existing housing stock. You know, if you're really lucky, you're just knocking it out of the park. Maybe you can you, know, you get a new build, right? Existing housing stock. You're buying an old home, like it's 20, 30, 40 years old, maybe older. Um, and then right now, you know, with the with the rates sell off, bonds are not not holding their value. Yields going up. You've got the 30 year mortgage rate at seven percent now like it's just hit seven percent uh again back to the same level you know they haven't been uh at a seven handle since uh december 2000 so right at the end of the dot-com bubble Hmm. so now you're paying a seven handle again you're signing up to finance this house 30 years at seven percent you're gonna sign up for all that you know that payment stream for you know most of the time, it's probably going to be a house that, you know, it's been through a few mortgages already. You're getting the same house. It's just depreciated another 20, you know, 20, 23 years now, right? What's happened since price or what's happened in that time frame on price? Um, the median existing home sale price uh, in December 2000 was about 150K. Now it's 396K, so about 150K to 400K. Like you've gone up 175%. The new entrant now in this system, what it's asking you to do, this financial system, what it's asking you to do to buy your new house uh, and on credit with 30 years of payment stream is asking you to buy the same house at a uh, 2.7X, 2.75X value. It's older now. It's, you know, it's going to take more, um, input more costs you know more replacement you have to replace the ac you have to replace you know just you, know, you name it there's costs involved it's a de- depreciating asset and you're gonna pay 2.75 percent on the same 30 years and seven percent it's yeah. it uh it's it, it, it's truly mind-boggling right that, yeah. that asking this system that says you know hey what's the the american dream it's home ownership like you too young couple you know man you know you can have a garage for yourself it's just absurd uh it truly is like we couldn't even hand it down like that same set of opportunities for like one generation um it's uh i don't know just 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 common sense it's also almost like uh some got rugged i was part of this like in 2021 you know you're hearing it's the common thing that jesse was referring to is the in-laws or whoever uh is telling you the wise, the wisdom, you know, buy a home, diversify, hold it. And you bought it 2% or whatever interest rate and the market falls out in most cities. It has, unless you're in, you know, in Austin and Asheville, these markets, now you're upside down and the recession hits. And so now you're out of a job and you're upside down uh, and your, you know, inflation's running. So now your cost of living's going up. It's just, it's a, it's a complete mess. Every, every cycle you put through this, like it gets harder. Um, but even still, like Jesse, we're talking about like, did, does it work? Right. When does it stop working? If you had bought your house in 2018, right. You've seen real estate prices go up. Now you finance, like you got a chance like your purchase mortgage and then you got your rate cut and you're like, you're at a a two and a half percent or a three now for 30 years. And you're like, wow, now these new buyers coming in are pushing my house up and they're signing up for this you know, indentured servitude for 30 years. It's like, well, really, really hard on them. But from your perspective, as you know, someone who was in the trade, even like three, five years ago, it looks like you're in the money. So it's just, it just takes time to get past that tipping point. Um, But 
when you frame it like we just did and you see that this new inch like your new home um you know everybody's gonna be happy once they get a you know, a pair of keys and approved for a mortgage and close on their house. When you look at it in reality, it's like, no, you just signed up for 30 years at 7% on the same house that was financed at that 25 years ago. And now you just did it for 2.75 X the price. It's like, all right, at what point does this stop working? No one knows. Like when you're, you know, working through a, a credit bubble right? and, and I count the mortgages uh, as a big part of that, right? More. Yeah. The home prices, like you know, banks lend against them as collateral. It's 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 riding that same trend up. So at some point, yeah. like your your prior entrance to the market, well, maybe it felt like in 2022 it wasn't going so well for your buyers in 2020 and 2021. But oh wait, this next batch will will push the tab on them. And I think that just pushes to the to the lack of fairness in the dynamics of the system, right? When we're asking the youth to sign up for that, it's 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 just it's it, it boggles my mind that we are operating in a way. It's like basically we're choosing to eat our young, um, and that's what that ex- existing kind of framework, that financial the, the credit based financial system is willing to do. And then if you go over here and play in Bitcoin, it's <laughs> the, you know those same set of rules and circumstances like you will they don't ex- that, that that's not um yeah. you know part of the part of the t- table stakes of, of adopting onto onto that system yeah and when you're talking about like a, a long-term store of value bitcoin your utxos don't depreciate you don't have any maintenance fees on them if you're custing it yourself um you, you can it's extremely liquid you don't have to worry about the uh, interest rate environment and whether or not you'll be able to offload your Bitcoin onto somebody else. There's always going to be a buyer on the other side of the market there. Uh, you can take it wherever you want. It's not uh, location dependent, like uh, houses, obviously it has to stay where it is. There's few houses outside of RVs and mobile homes that you can, you can take with you. Um, but yeah, when it comes to housing too, it does feel like we're at like the Wiley Coyote moment where I think that's been the big theme the last couple of weeks that the home builder stocks have been ripping because people are realizing that nobody wants to sell their house and then go get a 7% mortgage. If they have these two and a half, three percent mortgages locked in. So people are literally being forced to go build new homes that they can then move into. Yeah. I, I keep thinking about um, the book when money dies and th- th- that's a, about, all these little vignettes and stories from Weimar Germany um, of like what what that investment landscape and environment and climate looked like and how that evolved and, and just stories from it. Um, and hard assets did so well and, and speculators on hard assets did well um, on the surface because it looked like they were doing well. But really what was happening is the money was losing its, its value. Um, and and I'm starting to wonder if we're kind of seeing that with housing um, in, in our current era where there's a flight to hard assets. And for our culture, that means a, a house. And it's the only thing you can trust um, because they're printing more and more of the of the currency. And when money dies in our current era, um, is translating into like, okay, just you just you're gonna be fine if you have a house. You just get your house, you pay whatever arm and a leg. And ironically, or paradoxically, um, that 
can work out as an as an investment because as the money is dying and they're printing more and more of it, um, the inflation causes the value of that home to shoot upwards. So, like, you know, if, if the COVID stimulus was the reason for the real estate boom that happened in the two years following, which I think it was, you know, house prices went up 30% in two years during a pandemic. Um, and I think it was because the money was dying a little bit more right then. Um, and what's wild about that is that people who were, who were sitting on a, a mortgage saw the equity of their home or, or the, the market equity that they could realize increase um, because they were holding this debt contract that they had to pay out in nominal dollars from the past. So the loser there in that situation is, is the, the bank, um, which is kind of a surprising uh, and, and rare feeling uh, if that is what's happening here. If, if real estate continues to boom as the money dies, the, the dollar dies, the dollar has to be inflated away um, because we have to inflate away the, the national debt. Um, real estate could be one of those things that on paper works out well because it's sort of retaining its purchasing power. Even if it is losing in, in real terms, it can still do well in nominal terms. Um, and, and people will think that they're geniuses for investing in real estate. So I, I wonder if like a starter home here in LA went from before the pandemic, a starter home was like $700,000 in LA. It's an expensive housing market. Now it's a million and it's not going down from, or maybe it will, but it hasn't gone down from the pandemic rally. And so now a starter home is a million dollars, 7% mortgage. Good luck paying your $70,000 of, of, uh, of interest. Uh, um, you know, I'm not annualized, but, um, and we could see another, if we have another crisis that necessitates a massive stimulus, which I, I think is what we're heading towards. Um, when we have another COVID style stimulus, uh, they print a, you know, they have to print a bunch more. The housing market could see the same sort of 30, 40% bump happen again. And then a starter home is is suddenly 1.3, 1.4 million. And whoever got in at this level uh, looks like they're a winner on nominal terms, um, but it's the money dying, ultimately. It, I it wonder if that's where it, Like there's a corridor here, I'm imagining, right? There's there's the melt up, right? The prices continue to go up, or there's the you know deflationary bust um, when you know, we realize in this game of musical chairs, right? There's not enough economic activity out there for everybody to service their debt. Um, and then what? The banks had to foreclose on everybody. Um, you just end up with an angry populace, you know, one way yeah. or the other. It's like you're leaving out the new gener the new entrants. Um, you know, it gets harder and harder for them to achieve the same things, you know, with each progressive generation, or it just ends in pain for for everybody. It's It's... It's an unstable kind of path you're trying to very unstable to navigate. So Jesse, that's really uh, there's something really there, like when you said about because the common there's something like insidious about the common mantra or narrative is 
where do you you can't eat your you can't eat your bonds you can't eat your state uh, your your stocks but you need a house you can live in it and so just the thought is you just buy you buy your home and that's where you put the money uh and this um I was I remember like so Fannie Mae when the government subsidized for homes was ha happened after the Great Depression and it was after this big crash and there, there's something too like this fact of well you don't know if the money's safe in these other places but you can live in the home we can put our dollars it's a, it's a way for capital to flow and it's not until you have the opportunity cost we've talked about I think on the first episode when you because I, I I was part of this uh before finding bitcoin it's like you save capital and you're like, well, what do you do with it and you don't really know about stocks and you remember something happened in 08 and that it's not necessarily the safest place and so you're thinking about where does it go and like well i guess you're supposed to buy a home and, and it appreciates and you see in markets uh but then that completely changes when you think about the opportunity costs so you have the down payment that we've talked about and then what's the current price of btc and the liquidity profile and, and all the things that go along with that assessment that just doesn't exist when you're looking at it from the traditional lens of what Matt was showing on, um, you know, traditional like balance sheet of an individual. And I think that's exactly right. It's like when the money dies, when you don't have anywhere else to put it, you're putting it in the place that at least if everything else dies, you have a place to like live in, you have a place to, you know, shelter your family. Uh, it's a very like sad and, scary thing because when you're when whenever this thing does fall out to marty's point about the wily e. coyote like it's not going to end up good for anybody and they're just going to be holding these bags of mortgages that uh you talk about the price just randomly was talking last night about the in-laws parent a house that was eighteen thousand dollars when they first bought it up in i mean this is like you know a small town or whatever but it's still the point that uh every year you know you're 20 30 years depreciating so the asset's not getting better and the price is basically 10 to 20x that uh there's something very wrong with that that system yeah so when the wily e. coyote reality sets in and gravity takes over um i guess like the 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 historical parallel that pops out is luke roman has been talking about um israel in the 80s and what they had to do to to get out from under their debt situation, which was inf massive inflation to, to inflate away the debt. Um, and the bondholders are the losers. So that's who gets robbed in order to get out from under a crushing debt burden. It's, it's the bondholders. And, and you can think like that's the banks, but it's ultimately the people who have 60-40 portfolios and the 40% gets just, just evaporated. Um, and in a way, that's sort of happening. I mean, what, what Matt was walking through, 25% um, purchasing power destruction in three years, that's that process in action. And of course, it, it can go a lot further. Um, and that's your debt jubilee, uh, which is a funny thing where, you know, you, you could have homeowners who have this nominal debt contract suddenly find that it's much easier to pay that off. Um, but their 401k that includes a, a, a large bond allocation um, is also robbed from. So, you know, they, it depends on how you're allocated then, right? Where if you're overweight uh, your house, then you come out ahead if you, you know, torch your 40% bond portfolio, bond allocation. Well, so... 
yeah, it, it ultimately this could really hurt pensions is kind of the, the long and short of it. Like, well, and, and retirees in particular who shift to greater percentages well, based of off, bond allocations. Well, based off the charts that Matt just showed, like it, it is. And like back to the point, you know, to the when money dies point that you make, like people feel like they're wealthy on paper because asset values are going like, is that like that was the point I was trying to make earlier, like has the last 30 years of these boomers building up the retirements has been the mirage that they think it's there. So like if you mentioned a 60, 40, uh, stock bond split, but like towards like Matt and I went over it, like the target date funds, like they shift you to 80, 20 bond stocks by the end. And if you have a 25% fall in purchasing power of those bonds of that, that's 20% of your overall portfolio as you're heading into retirement right now over the last three years, which is insane. I think, yeah, what it amounts to is like all that exists are the goods and services in the economy. Everything else is just claims on those, right? And if you look at what we stacked this system, what it's done, like just by, you know, trying to manage um, the business cycle, like with the, you know, fiscal policy, monetary policy, and, you know, stimulus to try to smooth that out over you know, basically the entire time since World War II, 70 years. Um, what you've ended up doing is creating more claims on the goods and services that exist in the economy than, than, than exist, right? Because we think like, oh, you create more credit, um, that'll increase the amount of goods and services in the economy. That'll, that'll increase growth, right? And that's the framework. It's like you just got the money, the, the money multiplier from just policy and fiscal stimulus, it, it'll work whatever and it clearly doesn't right you look at the charts right. it's like the, the amount of credit creation versus the amount of economic growth and they it doesn't keep up so at some yeah. point you, you, know, you estimate right now what's the amount of dollar credit claims outstanding iif says uh it's 300 trillion dollars <laughs> you, you don't really know how much credit is out there and then you look at gdp just on on the order of like 25 trillion dollars so right. even if you don't spend any or you know you put in no uh you know, maintenance or everything that goes into maintaining that GDP, the next 12 years um, is already spoken for. Like the claims already exist. So now if we just keep creating more credit, you got more claims. Uh, you got more claims built up on the same amount of goods and services, essentially. Like you're not going to get real growth. And we've known that. Like the, the, the book has been written that real growth is not coming out of this system. Like we've known that since at least 2008. Uh, if you're a policymaker, it should be you know, written, written in, in stone, not in pencil anymore. Like it's known the system, the credit creation model, it's not creating in, incremental growth. Yeah. So Jeff to Booth keep going had, back, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Jeff Booth in, in the price of tomorrow, um, lays out how it's, uh, incremental $4 of, of debt to drive $1 of GDP growth at this point, which is not a winning bargain. And then if you keep doing that, right, like essentially you get to a point where it just it just keeps putting you further and further behind. And I think yep. so policymakers have realized this now um, and there is a hesitance. So you're saying like there's going to be another you know deflationary crisis, something like 2008, something like 2020. But at this point, we know like the, the, the lessons learned after 2020 have shown you like the, you know, that is not, you know, an infinite trick. You just can't keep doing that. Uh, and expect this to get get better. Like for example, like China stimulus, right? They they see the writing on the wall. Like the global economy is slowing, their exports are slowing, et cetera, and they're only just starting to apply. You know the 
the most like just a couple pinches of salt worth of stimulus and like we'll cut the policy rates by 10 bits or something they're not coming in with bazookas you know like they did in uh, q1 of 2020 because they know the what they thought was a steroid it's it's actually you know more likely a poison and you just keep putting yourself more and more behind and i think at this point everybody has realized that and now we're in the mode where say like we like as policymakers, like if you're setting monetary policy it's like oh no we have to we have to err to the the downside risks and try to over tighten as um you know, you know be stronger you know don't be so e- like easy don't be doves be hawks um and you see that around the world like you saw two central banks today like norway was one of the like increasing rates so they they're they're swinging the pendulum back the other direction almost um and then that goes bring it back up to the point of when money dies um you know larry lapard you know highlights sorry for the that um apologies highlights the Mermican chart right the gold price in the 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 weimar inflation and if you just look at the averages it's just like oh that's a smooth just buy gold and hold it and it's like no you realize like it's uh it's a system that wants to toggle from like inflationary melt up to deflationary bust and it's just gonna yeah. swing in between and it's a yeah. it's a really a messy chaotic process and I, I i think we're like collectively only just starting to awaken up to that yeah. fact I, the, the, the bells went off in 2020 and that's the world we're living in now yeah i get the sense that we are on track for a deflationary crunch um that will then uh, luke roman has, has brought up this uh phrase that well, isn't from him but i heard it from him so i'll credit him um that deflation is the midwife of hyperinflation uh and you know the deflationary crunch causes the crisis that necessitates the stimulus that causes the inflation and and that's what the, the trajectory of weimar was was this increasing volatility in inflation so not the average inflation rate went up over time, but it was actually just an increasing whipsaw between high inflation and negative inflation, deflation, um, that ultimately led to that, to money dying there. Exciting times, gentlemen. All, all, I, could, all I could think about, I was thinking about, uh, you know, chasing from a personal or, or institution perspective, um, BlackRock ETF and trying to get a Bitcoin allocation uh, over time to you know be able to sustain the the living that people want or the the returns. But then it, I ended up and I was thinking halfway through this is oh that's very bullish and then the other side I was like oh but then the Bitcoin sits at Coinbase. So there's <laughs> right. a there, there's a real yeah. uh, it's it's uh, I mean it, it's yeah it 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 is a call for us to build people out there to build products that are. Uh, able for others to adopt that or have more principles that are, you know, what we know about, but I just couldn't help but go through that progression of, okay, well, they're going to go, there's going to be a gradual and suddenly, and they're going to recognize Bitcoin as an asset and, and BlackRock's going to be an ability for that to happen. It's going to be helpful. But then over time, that basically puts them in this position to hold a lot, if yep. not the majority of BTC via Coinbase. You, you can, you can get it right here. You can, you can have the right conclusion and have the right allocation and still pick the wrong investment vehicle that ends up 
becoming a goose egg because of some unknown risk, some hidden risk in the governance or custody model of that vehicle. Uh, and I'm afraid that that's going to happen. It's happened in crypto with BlockFi you know, or people who put in their their hard-earned money into Celsius because they thought that they could live off of the interest, you know, and, and that's going to be a, a winning model and I can retire early. Nope, that's a goose egg. Um, you know, same with BlockFi. Um, people who, who had lots of assets on FTX and Wall Street's going to do that too. Uh, in some different ways, that outcome is going to happen for Wall Street firms who are going to go through the learning curve of how to correctly engage with this asset, this asset class in general. And, and it's a real shame because there's going to be a lot of people whose pensions, they're going to have the, the bond portion of their pension go up in smoke, um, and they're going to be thrilled that they got some Bitcoin, you know, as part of their allocation, and that part's going to do well. And some of those people are still going to get a goose egg because they had it with the wrong custodian or the wrong governance model. And yeah, in, that's why Bitcoin in, education is so important here. Yeah, and I and I think it's important. Like this is part of this podcast, but also anchoring it to real world practicality. Jesse, what Jesse just referenced, we saw happen with IRA accounts uh, with Gemini. So there's a firm, I don't remember the name, but if you Google Gemini IRA, it'll come up um, that used Gemini. At, and there's actually two and both had Gemini involved. One was the firm used Gemini as the custodian and these are boomers. So they have an allocation and they got fish. And so there was, I think, 50 to $75 million. And if you think about the one amount like the one allocation of funds is your retirement that should just be offline cold storage you don't need it they lost it they got the trade completely right uh and they were rugged because of the custodian and like just the intermediary and then the other side of it which gemini also had involved but in a different relation is they had a partnership with eagle brook uh which is kind of a quasi i'll get it a little wrong but a tech platform for fas and rias that are supposed to be super prudent risk averse but they love the yield. And so between the FAs looking at that and also, uh, you know, Gemini having right next to their the ability to get that two, three, whatever Genesis was promising that these FAs and clients were like, oh, I see 3%, I can get this on there. And now there's a close to a billion dollar hole that's sitting between that for people that went in there. So you still found the trade, but because the vehicle wasn't correct, because the asset's different than just the dollars, uh, and whatever happened with Robinhood, you click a button, you revert it. It doesn't work that way in this asset. And so that's a big part of all this is like, we're not just saying these things because we're thinking about them or as possibly could, like we see this happen time and time again. And so it's important to like talk about it and then share so that it doesn't happen to the individuals we're involved with. Yeah, I'd say you need to know what you're like, do some, do your research. Um, you know, anytime you put Bitcoin or, you know, you were talking about dollars and yielding products um, and putting them in a wrapper, right? History, you know, the young history of, of, you know, the Bitcoin experiment has made one thing clear, and that's ultimately those things that you thought were Bitcoin will turn into, uh, like, once it's in the court of law, it's a credit. You just bought a credit product, and you took credit risk with no upside. Like, there's no positive upside in this for you, uh, and it goes back to what I was talking about. Like, there's, there's alpha on the table here for the person, the individual, 
or, or partnerships who want to learn and exercise uh, personal responsibility. Like this is this is a tool, but it's on you um, to to learn how to you know understand it um, and kind of map uh, like the ownership structure that works in this in this new paradigm. But yeah, don't buy a, what you thought was an equity. It's the opposite of a convertible bond, right? You think you have a bond with some upside, like it turned into the, the good thing if things went well in your favor. Like when you buy products like that, it's it, you're doing the opposite. You're you're buying th- something you thought was like an equity-like or risk-like product, like with a return profile. And it turned out you you bought a credit, and it turned into the credit when when things ultimately went uh, went bad for you. You uh, you bought oh, you bought Suzu's yeah. yacht. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The, yeah, I mean, and when you put it like in this context too, that would be one of the saddest things that could ever happen is you're riding the wave. Bitcoin goes to six figures, seven figures maybe. And you're like, yes, I made it. And you get to the end and you get rubbed. Because, you, know who yeah. loves it? you know who loves this? The lawyers. The, the lawyers love it. Like this is just long drawn out court battles, et cetera. And it just, you know, that's who you're, you're, your allocation is, is ultimately going to go to like a big chunk of it will go to is the, yeah. The I mean, Mount Gox is going on 10 years now of hmm. that, that, wow. that whole case. So, well that, and that just reminded me of, uh, it's, it may not even be the, the ruggy may be self-inflicted in the sense of not only the wrong decision, but the wrong philosophy. Because we talk about ESG, whatever the narrative is going to be, people may fall into that trap of like, oh, of course the proof of work is bad and like BlackRock has it under, or, you know, whoever the large entity is. Like, oh, that's that's not my coin. Little yeah. do they know. Wrong decision there. They hold zero coins. Don't let Fink think for you, okay? That's some original <laughs> thoughts. ESG is an ephemeral trend that's dying. You do not want to get on the ESG Bitcoin train. You're going to get, you're going to get rid of it. Isn't Bitcoin bad for- isn't Bitcoin bad for the environment, Marty? No, Bitcoin's Bitcoin. Honestly, I, I earnestly believe this. Bitcoin is the catalyst for the environmentalist future that, like, we want to see. Like, we're gonna be as extremely efficient from an energy perspective. I mean, I can beat the dead horse on how Bitcoin mining makes us extremely energy efficient, off grid and on grid miners are economically incentivized to find the lowest cost of energy. That is energy is wasted or stranded underutilized. So just by going and taking that, that electricity that is being wasted and utilizing it to produce Bitcoin efficiency gain, stranded energy, same thing. You're tapping into something that is out in the wild and cannot be brought to market. You bring the market to that thing and you monetize it there. Beautiful thing. That's the first order effect of the energy. Second order effect is the monetary policy which actually brings opportunity cost back to markets so that you have to weigh capital allocation decisions. You're not just able to print money and throw it willy nilly at stuff that probably shouldn't be uh, invested in or have capital allocated it to. So yeah, Bitcoin is incredibly good for the environment directly and indirectly on a first order and second order effect. Yeah. The the, the most ESG thing out there actually if it was, if ESG was actually about environmental, social governance, um, this is that because it's the greatest tailwind for for renewable energy, um, and it brings like equity and 
um, property rights to everyone in the world who's unbanked um, and prevents those people from being robbed via inflation. Um, and so it, it empowers the individual in a way that nothing on earth currently does. And yet it is smeared as this thing that is bad for the world or bad for the environment when the opposite is true. Uh, but maybe, that, maybe it, Marty it, and Larry working No, even with that being said, I was just about to say, I know what you're going to say. Uh, well, I was just, Jesse, don't even fall into their framework. ESG is a, Oh yeah. is a dog whistle yeah. for control. Like they just, they don't care about the environment. They don't care about social justice. They don't care right. about governance. That's what I mean. Like, they if, don't care about that. If it was actually about that, if yeah. it was actually about that, then then Bitcoin would be in, in the good graces of BlackRock, but it's not about E, S, or G. It's about what we deem to be uh, you know, a good corporate citizen based on what's good for BlackRock and the U.S. government. Yeah. Well, to bring that, this back in a long time, the energy in uh, with, the, with the BlackRock ETF, I think as this plays out over time, and we're talking like years, um, you see, all right, an ETF will bring capital into uh, into Bitcoin. Um, we'll go through layers, but it has to get there. And then you see kind of the mechanisms of how kind of the, the financialization uh, kind of engine is now going to have to plug in and play in this new space, right? You see a market that has to go has to go buy UTXOs into a into a into a no offer market. Um, now energy is kind of back, you know, instead of taking a back seat for the last 15 years um, and, and policy, I mean, in, 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 in every table um, that matters. Now, now energy um, is, is back up, you know, at the front of the, of the wedding reception at those, those tables close to the, to the decision making. So I think it gets energy back involved um, as a stakeholder. Um, and then I think it's just part of this broader process of, um, you know, financialization suppressing input costs throughout the economy, right? You can, you, you see this everywhere. Like it's the, the, the WTF happened in 1971 charts, right? You see labor uh, costs like just flatlining. Um, you, you can see it in, in commodities charts. You know, you go, go look at the copper chart, like long-term, you see it break, you know, right about uh, between the dot-com bubble in 2008. You see these cost inputs just going up. You see iron ore, et cetera. Um, and it's like, I think it's, it's just a part of everything breaking the kind of the, the engine of financialization that was, you know, keeping things stable prices low for, for 40 years. And now you slowly see everything like just one rivet at a time. Um, you know, people look at the oil markets, um, you saw pressure build up in 2008, you saw the, the technology of fracking, um, you know, kind of alleviate some of that pressure, right, and provide a deflation in oil. But the thing about the credit system is um, it has to fill any deflationary hole, any technological advancement, you know, any, any, anything, anything new. It has to gobble it up um, um, and, and, you know, just create more credit. You know, it, it will just abhor um, all of that vacuum. Uh, so it'll just continue to suck out air. Space. So I think if, if there's one positive coming out of this week, I think this is, you know, as as uh, kind of Bitcoin and, and then the legacy financial system, the credit money um, 
you know, the credit dollar standard go head to head. You start to see these two binary stars orbiting and there can only be one winner coming out of this room uh, over the long run. You know, it will be a messy process in between, but I think those linkages are there. Um, over time, the, the economics um, win at the end of the day, it's undefeated. Um, and we're going to, we're going to find out is the exciting thing. So, you know, what, uh, what is unmaintainable will not be maintained over the long run. Which then means Marty, what's that phrase that you like to say? We're going to throw a grenade at the fiat system. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Which, which phrase? We're going to win. Oh, we are going to win. Yeah. Because we got the economics wins. We got a binary star problem here one doesn't have the economics to support it the other does that's i mean and i think as much as we've been uh denigrating blackrock and their particular fund structure and their custody model i do think it is a signal like you, you you compound that announcement with jerome powell House Ser- Financial Services Committee meeting saying, yeah, I think crypto has staying power with um, like Fidelity, Schwab, Citadel. I think the incumbent financial system does understand the gravity of the problem to a certain extent. And they, at the very least, view Bitcoin as something like, all right, if these guys are right, we should at least have some exposure to this and, and lean in at least a little bit as a hedge which yeah the real yeah reality is you have to take what the market gives you there's a lot of opining on is it good or bad for bitcoin it's like it's happening uh and so you have to build products and services that the market wants that fit to the model of it um it's gonna happen so well yeah exactly and that's something that mvk says all the time and he actually tweeted earlier this week it's we can have our critiques on particular ways bitcoin products are structured by certain companies um but that's also the beauty of bitcoin bitcoin's an open permissionless system if people want to interact with the protocol there's nobody to stop them from doing so if they can download the software if they can get access to private public key pairs and put utxos in them they can begin building structured products around that if you want to michael's point uh, you can sit here and cry about it and whine about it and say, oh, this isn't the way to do it. Or you can go out and out-compete and build better products that the market will recognize over time. Which, we're coming up on two hours. And before we we wrap up here, speaking of products uh, and things that people are building in the space, I think it's a good time to sort of wrap up on a good note, on a white pill note, on how Bitcoin fitting into traditional uh, cr- credit portfolios can can sort of help ease the pain of the transition as we go with what you guys are building at Build, Matt. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, I think I've been pretty public about this, but uh, we were working on a project with Unchained for a long time. Um, Marty, you've talked a lot about on, on TFTC and RHR over time uh, about their lending model uh, and their best practices built around their, their multi-sig vaults. Um, and then a lot like the uh, the on-ramp custody model where you bring in uh, key management with multiple stakeholders. Um, Unchained lending works the same way. So Unchained is really, you know, if you think about it, we were talking about earlier about all these blow-ups, you know, BlockFi's, Celsius, et cetera. They don't need to be named. They don't, they, they shouldn't be remembered. Just put them in the, you know, just tombstones of, of the body count of uh, mistakes that have been made and lessons 
hard learned um, as people try to figure out uh, how to build upon the uh, the resilience and soundness of, of Bitcoin infrastructure. Um, but Unchained's lending model is something that um, really stuck out to me as I was considering in 2020 and 2021 as we were watching that bond market sell-off get underway and I realized this isn't going to work for our clients. And this, this is a mission that I've kind of been going after for, I'd say, 10 years, the last 10 years of my life, um, just knowing that something was coming with these bond allocations and that something had to be done uh, to save our, you know, our parents, friends, families, et cetera, our, you know, the workers in our communities. You guys talked about, you know, municipal pensions, firefighters, police officers, et cetera. Um, you know, our communities need saving here. Um, so this is where, you know, we got, we, we need to build uh, solutions uh, to solve that. And that means not just, you know, getting people um, to understand Bitcoin, um, if they do choose to adopt, um, teaching them, you know, the ways to do it uh, soundly, key management, et cetera, that, that Marty and Matt do such a great job uh, week in and week out. Uh, but it means like finding other ways uh, as well. Um, and that's where, you know, over the last, it's, all, it's, it's coming up on almost two years since, you know, I first met Parker and we were trying to figure out how we could get Bitcoin incorporated to, to save the bond market problem. And that has materialized into launching um, Build as a uh, my firm, I, I manage this, my day job, um, Build Asset Management. We launched a, a private placement pooled fund, which exclusively uh, invests in there in Unchained's Bitcoin back loans. So if you look at the profile of how we could see a credit allocation having a fighting chance to keep its head above water and preserve purchasing power in this environment, what are you looking for? Well, one, minimize duration. Uh, whereas, you know, we, Jesse talked about the last 40 years, duration was your friend as rates just kind of cycled down. Um, lower lows, lower highs for 40 years uh, in the, the biggest credit bull market, you know, on the way up on that mountain. Well, what did things look like on the other side? This is where you have to really be clever and design solutions that, you know, hopefully protect your clients and allow them to preserve some purchasing power in this dollar system, dollar credit system. Um, so high nominal yield, low duration, and then also secured um, with a lot of value behind it. So 40% LTV loans are equivalently 2.5x over collateralized. And then most importantly too is perfecting the, the security interest as a, as a lender in that, in that collateral. Um, and that's what I think as partners on chain uh, does a better job at or has done a better job at building, you know, very conservatively over the um, it's almost eight years now that they've been in, in existence. So uh, shout out to Joe and the team there. We think they're on to something. Um, I think they, they stood out, you know, in our due diligence um, as really peerless in in this um, emergent space. So that's my day job. That's what we're doing. And then on top of that, there's some other projects I'm working on. So my hometown is Jefferson City, Missouri. Um, I've been, you know, just shooting this idea out with Marty uh, for, I mean, it's been a while, uh, but we're making it happen. We're going to hold an event in Jefferson City, Missouri on October 26th and, and 27th. I'm going to call it the Bitcoin Expedition. Just find it a good title. It's where the Lewis and Clark Expedition, you know, close to it launched off. And Jesse, you've written about that too. The, the you know you got to go out and explore the the West, right? And that's what this this new opportunity, this new space is, um, really exploring and educating um, how Bitcoin and this opportunity in front of us 
um, can really tap um, you know growth. It's the it's it's the next level, um, you know the, the the next field to explore, if you will. Uh, so we'll be doing that. Um, there'll be an investor day we're planning, and then an education day. We were going to try to line it up with a uh, Mizzou uh, football game, so SEC football hold the hold the tailgate with uh, you know other Bitcoin companies coming in and sponsor and just meet and greet Q and A, have a great time uh, with your fans. Unfortunately, that's not going to work. We couldn't get a date that lined up on the schedule uh, for you know just Bitcoiners and and the audience as well. With there's a couple marquee events going on around that time frame too, but. Hopefully we put on a good one this year, um, and we'll, we'll get that football game uh, on on the calendar for for next year. But you know, this is an event where you know if you're a Bitcoiner in Kansas City, St. Louis, Des Moines, Springfield, Omaha, you can even go as far as like Memphis, Nashville, and you know expand. Uh, but it's a close drive for four to five hours, and I think we're gonna make a lot of headway. Um, not just uh, kind of the Marty, last week on RHR, you and Matt were talking about it. it's the same people over and over. Uh, <laughs> it's not going to be that. I think we'll get a lot of your favorite friends um, and and you know people you you've uh, already met, relationships built in the Bitcoin community. But there's going to be a lot of new blood here. Uh, we're we're making to make some some headway, um, open hearts and minds to to learning about this new opportunity and and what it can do uh, for the region. So we're excited to announce that the website is going to be. Bitcoin-expedition.com. We spun it up today, so we've got tickets available for Friday. Investor Day will be on an invite basis, so just because everybody has to be an accredited investor or financial advisor, institutional audience, or work in the industry, we do need to make sure that um, everybody coming in is is, uh, um, just an appropriate audience uh, by nature. But Friday is going to be GA Day. Uh, it's going to be a great time. Uh, we've got a great venues booked. So bringing a kind of a, a Bitcoin only, Bitcoin focused event to hopefully somewhere that, uh, you know, there's a lot of passionate Bitcoiners out there. You know, Marty, um, you've probably learned this over and over again. People just reaching out to you on TFTCC episodes. But after our episode, I had people from, you know, our hometown, uh, career placement at my uh at uh, where I went to graduate school at Washington, St. Louis, et cetera. Like they're out there. Um, they just need that gathering point. And I think this will be submitting an event to help make that happen. So that's, that's uh, something else we're building and, and looking to put on. I'm very much looking forward to it. That's something that has astonished me. And Michael and I talk about every, every once in a while, the freaks are everywhere. It's crazy oh, yeah. when you get people reaching out and the, across the spectrum from your from your plumber to some of the the wealthiest asset managers in the world it's a it's a special thing because we're, we're working well, on something a, special here that's a good time to uh give a, a shout out so there's another freak that says hi uh and thanks to says hi thanks for marty for uh helping him on his bitcoin journey and also hi to the team he put together the audio that is gonna uh be the new audio for the last trade um, he wanted it. His, he goes by Johnny Hoddle, uh, one on Twitter, and he does musical services in Canada. So he said he's available if anybody wants to reach out for weddings and bar mitzvahs. Well, Johnny, you did an incredible job. I love the intro. Should we play it now? Do you have it up, Logan? It should be in the Slack. You should yes. be able to. Play. Is it not possible? I mean, when we're, hold on, I have to like, go back. 
if you can, I'll, I'll give a little note on if anybody's seen the, the entourage when he goes on and he gets the free speakers and he puts the hat on. That's what I told him that it'd feel very much like the putting on the hat to get the speakers, but we, we would give him a shout. The, the people have already heard it. It's at the top of this episode. Uh, yeah, Matt hasn't Perfect. heard it yet. What if they fast forward it? Yeah, I want Matt. I think Matt's, Matt's going to enjoy it. He can, well, I'll get it. You don't have to make everybody else listen to it twice. <laughs> Did you guys hear that? No, they wouldn't have heard that. No, you wouldn't have heard. All right. Well, you guys heard it in the beginning of the episode. We're dragging on here. Um, <laughs> Matt, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, anybody listening that wants to learn more about the intricacies of the retirement fund landscape, uh, go follow Matt on Twitter. He's always tweeting. And go check out Build. What's the website for Build? Uh, Build's website is getbuilding.com. If you'd like to learn more about this project I talked about with Unchained, you can go to buildbitcoin.com. And then my Twitter handle is at buildcio. Go check it out. Episode five of The Last Trade in the books. Go forth and enjoy your weekend, freaks. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Johnny Hoddle. (laughs) Shout out, Johnny. Johnny Hoddle (laughs) one.